But, you know, when you have someone who looks at the world in an entirely different way than you do, of course you're going to have to introduce concepts in a different way. We're all headed in the same direction. You just may have to come at it from the opposite angle. And, you know, that was one of the best things that I learned as a teacher, and I'm still learning that, obviously. You know, it's one of those things where uh, you can put things into practice and say, well, this worked for these nine students. What about the 10th one? You know, why didn't it work for that one? This episode contains adult language and adult humor. Since when have trumpet players ever been considered adults? If you are easily offended by these types of conversations, consider switching to the oboe. Welcome to the Trumpet Guru Sang Podcast. I'm your host, Jose Johnson. My guest for this episode is Brian Shaw. Brian, well, he's not afraid to try something new. While his original passion for playing the trumpet came from Maynard Ferguson, Brian found his education leading him down the classical path. Brian is highly regarded for his skills on the Baroque trumpet and is co-principal trumpet of the Dallas Winds, principal of the Baton Rouge Symphony, Santa Fe Pro Musica, and Spire Baroque Orchestra. But he still loves to play jazz and crank out those high notes. So, pour yourself a big glass, pull up a chair, and let the hang begin! All right, and welcome to the uh, Trumpet Guru's Hang, and I am hanging today with Mr. Brian Shaw. Brian, good to see you, my friend. Great to see you. Thanks, Jose. Oh, man, it is an absolute pleasure. Uh, we've, we've crossed paths a number of times in the past, but just never really, you know, had a, had a super, super deep hang. So this is one that I'm looking forward to. Uh, tremendous amount of respect for you as a player, uh, and... I just uh, I, I really am interested in kind of kind of getting your take on a few things um, now that you've you've made a transition in your yeah. life. So uh, yeah, big big change. Um, so I taught at LSU at the School of Music for 15 years, and uh, a few years ago, after my divorce, uh, I met a woman uh, who uh, I had known in grad school actually almost 20 years ago, and we were, we'd been friends for a long time, and and she uh, wanted to. Uh, kind of start talking again wanted to she's a singer and wanted to make an album and and uh, so we started talking and we've been talking that <laughs> every day since so uh the the trick with all that though is that she has a son here in seattle and obviously lives here in seattle so uh, uh i wasn't really able to move up here and she wasn't really able to move down there so we were doing the long distance thing for about three years until I was able to uh, move up to Seattle with my son. So I left my position at LSU in December and uh, I've been up here since. Oh, okay. So uh, yeah. how are you enjoying uh, life in the Pacific Northwest? Well, it's great. It's a little bit of a culture shock from Louisiana, but you know, I've, I've been coming up here for several years now, so I've, I'm kind of used to it. So it's been great though. Yeah. But you're, you're, you, so you're originally a Midwest boy, right? Right. I'm from Southern Illinois originally. Yeah. So you, you go from Southern Illinois, uh, you, you go to college, you, you're, you're at Eastman. So you're in, you mm -hmm. know, in New York and you end up in uh, Louisiana. So yeah, it makes sense. You know, you, you end up out <laughs> the Pacific Northwest. I mean, just, yeah, it, just it's a logical to, progression. That's right. Yeah. We're just, you know, kind of going in a big circle here around North America, it seems like. Yeah. <laughs> Play the trumpet, see the world. That's so. right. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, what, what are you doing in terms of the, the music scene up there? Are you, are you plugged into it already or are you just kind of, you know, making headway? Yeah, I'm, I'm just getting started. You know, uh, 
after teaching full time and uh, you know not being able to play up here, even though I was coming up here a fair amount, uh, it's been kind of a, a big shift. And and so you know I'm kind of starting over in a lot of ways because I'm getting to know the local musicians and, and getting to make friends with some trumpet players in the area. Uh, but there's some really great folks who live just around the corner from me. Actually, it turns out uh, Charles Butler, who was principal of the Seattle Symphony and the Israel Philharmonic for years and years just lives over the hill for me. So <laughs> I've gotten to know him. I didn't know him. And he's, of course, an amazing resource. Uh, and then there's there's lots of other folks here in town that have been really generous with their time and recommended me for this and that. And, you know, I'm getting to go through that thing that most people go through in their 20s uh, <laughs> at 44. And so uh, it's been a, sort of a way to test all the things that I've told my students, you know, about showing up on the scene and being active and being available and being as excellent as you can when you get a call and trying to practice what I preach a little bit, you know. Yeah. So do you have any intention on, on getting back into uh, academia or, or are you uh, moving on, ready to move on to a new chapter? That, I mean, I, I wouldn't rule it out yet. I'm sort of enjoying being out of academia a little bit. And, uh, you know, I think I went through a bit of burnout, you know, with the LSU position. It was a great job and great people there. Uh, I love my students and my colleagues. Um, and I like the culture in Louisiana a lot, but, you know, it was just a lot of work and kind of working on both sides in the classical realm and the jazz realm too. And uh, sort of, uh, you know, it, it, over over time, I, I think I needed a little bit of a break. And so uh, this has been good for me and I, I'm not far enough into it yet to really make a decision about that, I don't think. Right. Um, well, you know, it, sometimes I think we, we get so used to our routine and, uh, you know, it, it's hard to make these small adjustments, let alone these kind of life altering <laughs> changes. Um, but, sure. uh, you know, it, it's, yeah, leaving, leaving the comfort of the known, uh, even when there is a level of, of burnout and when, when, there, when there's difficulties and, and things like that, it, it's easy to want to hold on. So, I mean, obviously you had a big, uh, you had a big reason to, to make this, this change, but, um, you know, as you were going through that process of, you know, hey, this, you know, I've got to, I've got to give this up. Yeah, I've got to give up something that's good to get something that's great. Um, you know, what, what were some of the, the things that, that uh, you know, you that either pushed you towards like, no, you know, I'm ready to move on from this mm -hmm. uh, from a professional perspective. And then, you know, some of the things that, that you kind of miss about the scene. Oh, sure. Um... Well, you know, it's interesting because um, I guess I, I should back up because we, I moved up here with my son uh, over the summer of, uh, that would have been 21. So, you know, of course, this is all in the middle of COVID and everything's getting shaken up for everyone everywhere anyway. Uh, but for us, you know, I was, so starting in late August of 21, all the way through December, I was commuting back and forth from here to New Orleans, and then driving up to Baton Rouge to teach. So, you know, I'd fly down on a Monday night, uh, teach all day, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I'd finish my jazz ensemble rehearsal at 3.30, and then get in the car, break a lot of traffic laws, <laughs> driving down to New Orleans to make a 5.30 flight, uh, which is an hour away, and sometimes, you know, it's an hour and a half of traffic. So it was just really stressful. Um, and, you know, I didn't feel like I was really serving my students as well as I could, nor my my family. You know, I mean, you talk about, you know, nobody's happy. You know, <laughs> I'm not happy. 
the student, I mean, I think the students were getting what they needed, but at the same time, I just wasn't able to be around as much, you know, because you're literally in a different time zone. Uh, and so between those things and, you know, there was a lot of stress on, on my wife and our kids, both my son and her son, you know, with, with me being gone a, a fair portion of the time. And so um, at a certain point, I got so stressed out. This was about halfway through that. So like October that I got an ulcer. You know, and like when your body starts to go, hello, <laughs> this is not working, you know, it, it's it's time to make a decision. And, uh, you know, I think I'd asked so much of everyone around me, you know, my colleagues at LSU were great and very understanding. And, and I hope I didn't ask too much of them, but they still had to cover for me here and there, you know, with things. And so it was not a, it was not a tenable situation. And I knew that. Uh, I was only going to try to make it through the end of the school year all the way till May. But, you know, once once I got sick with an ulcer, you know, I, I was just sort of like, OK, you know, what's after this? You know, if I keep this up. And so those sorts of signs and talking to my family, uh, especially my wife about it, you know, it was it was time. And so I didn't want to leave in the middle of the year. I really wanted to make it through the whole year. But um, they're doing fine. And I'm actually going down there uh, this weekend to uh, visit, and, and uh, my son's going to go down to visit his mom down there. So that's going to be great. And we're driving, my wife and I are driving back. So we're bringing my car <laughs> and some trumpets, of course, and, you know, a stack of books and a dog back. So it's going to be quite the trip. Oh, that, that, <laughs> sounds, uh, that sounds very relaxing. <laughs> Well, we've got about six days to do it, so I figure, you know, we can kind of space it out. We've got folks we're visiting between here and there, and, and you know, so it's not going to be that relaxing, especially if the dog, <laughs> that's yeah. a little bit new variable, um, yeah. but, uh, you know, it, it should be fun. I'm sure we'll have something to write a, write a blog post about, if nothing else. I thought maybe you're going to try and pick up some gigs between uh, there <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. I think the trumpet may just, I may just have to practice the mouthpiece on the road for a little while on, on this trip. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. your series of one-nighters between uh, <laughs> Louisiana and, and, and Seattle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, my wife's a great singer. We could probably do put something together, but I'm not sure after driving eight hours a day, we're going to want to do that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, and, and you, you mentioned, uh, you know, doing some mouthpiece work and, um, Oh. You 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 uh you studied with uh with Professor Thompson uh up at uh, Eastman, mm -hmm. um and you know I got I guess I got turned on to him kind of like officially, uh even though you know I kind of knew the name, but uh, when he uh, published the, his book on on buzzing, mm -hmm. and um I just found that to be really fascinating, and, and it's such a controversial topic with so many people. It's like you you're either it, it seems to be very binary. You're either exceptionally pro mouthpiece buzzing, or you are you know it's it's Satan incarnate. Uh, so uh, I, I take it then that that you do some mouthpiece buzzing from time to time. Yeah, uh, I, I do. I mean, it's it's interesting. You know, my relationship with with buzzing. Uh, has changed a little bit over the years, but um, yeah, studying with Jim Thompson, of course, he has everybody go through um, his routine, the buzzing book, and uh, you know, I had buzzed before I, I, when I was in undergrad. I, I went to Eastern Illinois. My teacher Parker Melvin 
always had us doing, you know, uh, Chickowitz flow studies on the mouthpiece and then going to the trumpet, you know, back and forth, pretty standard stuff. And, and it, I, it helped me. It certainly opened up my sound because I was coming at classical trumpet playing from being, you know, sort of a Maynard head jazz, jazz guy, you know, with the sound about that big. <laughs> it was really loud, but it was about that big, you know? And, and so for me, uh, that was life-changing because uh, studying with Jim helped me, and through buzzing book techniques, sort of helped me connect the low register with the high register. And before I sort of had these gears, I would sort of shift into, you know, so like I could play high for a long time and that was fine. And I could play sort of middle of the road uh, and that was fine. But connecting things to where you could go up there and come back and vice versa, uh, that was not really happening until I, I got with Jim. And so, you know, the thing with mouthpiece buzzing for me is, yeah, you say it's controversial. I, I think it's interesting. It, it seems to have gotten more controversial, but maybe everything's more controversial now because people just say stuff online. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, I know, uh, you know, just from, from posting a couple snarky things on Facebook that I've, I've been guilty of, uh, you know, uh, people really react strongly to it. So for me, it's one of those things where if it works for you, I think you should do it. And if it doesn't work for you, you probably shouldn't do it. And I've had students who have fallen into both categories, and I think they've done the routine with good faith and, and you know, put the work into, into buzzing. And I'm not sure I really understand why it works for some people and, and not for others. Uh, I do have a theory that sometimes people who, I'm going to get in trouble, but, but, but folks who, uh, do the exercises on the mouthpiece too loudly generally don't have very good results because they end up sort of blowing out their aperture and it becomes sort of counterproductive and can actually make you have more problems than you started with. Um, so that's always sort of been a working theory of mine that, you know, if it doesn't work, it's probably because you're doing some part of it incorrectly or maybe too much uh, or just with, you know, uh, too loud too, too much tension in the chops. Something is probably not right. I don't know that to be the case for, for sure. But uh, yeah, a few years ago, I guess it's been like five or six years ago now, a trumpet player who I won't name uh, said something about like, you know, the mouthpiece is not really how, how the trumpet works. You shouldn't buzz the mouthpiece because you can see that if you buzz a note on the trumpet and then you put the body of the trumpet on the mouthpiece, you'll have a small nasal tone. And I thought, well, that kind of sounds like bullshit. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so I, I was sitting at home and I was practicing and sort of, you know, one, one-handed Clark studies and scrolling with the other hand, like I'm guilty of doing sometimes when you're just trying to get the horn on the face. And so I said, huh, I wonder if that's really true. And I buzzed a G in the staff, you know, and I put the horn, horn on there and that seemed like a decent tone. And then I played a C in the staff, you know, and then I went up to high C and, and did all of it. And then, you know, like 15 min minutes later, my Facebook is blown up because I posted this little video and, and, you know, everyone's like sort of arguing about it and, you know, very strong opinions on either side. And then about half an hour later, Wayne Bergeron calls me, he says, you can troublemaker. <laughs> and I was like, I didn't mean to, you know, so we had this long conversation about buzzing, um, which was kind of uh, surreal but but cool and uh so for for me i guess 
if it, like I said, if it works for you, you should do it. And if it doesn't work, you, you probably shouldn't do it. For me, it came at a really crucial time in my development as a trumpet player and helped me do things I couldn't do before. So of course, I'm going to think this is the greatest thing ever. Um, and I think it has helped a lot of people that I've worked with, but for some reason, it doesn't work for everybody. So I've become far less dogmatic about it than I used to be. Well, you know, I, I think that's that's the secret to life, man. You know, it, everything, it, you know, it's individual. And mm-hmm. you know, I, I think that's, uh, you know, when you're talking about how how crazy it can get on Facebook, obviously, <laughs> um, you know, you, you can't you can't express an opinion uh, without someone saying, you know, the complete opposite. And a lot of times it, it doesn't come from a place of um, like curiosity or debate, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, the, the conversation like, you know, well, I don't agree with this and this is why I agree with it and mm-hmm. or don't, don't agree with it. And, you know, but, you know, you seem to have an opposite opinion. So let's, let's look at this and let's, let's, uh, let's see if we can figure out why it works and why it doesn't work and that sort of thing, as opposed to now you're just wrong, dude. No, you're just, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Well, you know, that doesn't generate nearly as much traffic or, you know, as much interest. And, you know, if, when people are really belligerent on there, you know, nothing, nothing generates more, you know, angry typing than that, you know? So, uh, but I I think you're exactly right. It's, it's, it's sort of with everything. There has to be a balance, you know? And I mean, ironically, that's what Thompson's book is all about. He's always talking about balance. You know, that's that's always air-lip balance, and that's what the mouthpiece is supposed to establish. But uh, again, you know, um, it, it's one of those things where uh, I've learned to just sort of, this is what I believe, and leave it there, you know. Yeah. Well, that's good. And, and especially as a teacher, uh, you know, this is this is kind of like a, a standard as a running theme in some of these episodes, particularly when when I talk to people that are uh, either actively uh, in in academia or, you know, just you know, even teaching in private studio, um, that it's so important that you have a variety of ways of expressing concepts and helping people to to attain their goal. And I think too many times teachers uh, whether it's trumpet or anything else, teachers are more concerned with uh, the perpetuation of their thought processes mm-hmm. as opposed to helping the student gain what they need. Well, right. And, you know, if you if you start to learn about different learning styles, and this is something that I've just recently started to, to investigate a bit. But, you know, when you have someone who looks at the world in an entirely different way than you do, of course, you're going to have to introduce concepts in a different way. We're all headed in the same direction. You just may have to come at it from the opposite angle. And, you know, that was one of the best things that I learned as a teacher. And I'm still learning that, obviously, you know, it's one of those things where uh, you can put things into practice and say, well, this worked for these nine students. What about the 10th one? You know, why didn't it work for that one? Um, and uh, <laughs> I was uh, re- reading Wiff Red's book, the collaborative, his first book, the collaborative practice concepts, I think is what it's called. And uh, I think the prose in that book is just as good as the exercises. You know, so many times we, as trumpet players, just look at the exercise, you know, you want to get right to it. And uh, when you're looking at, you know, even Arvin, there's so much to be gained just by reading the, the prose there. And uh, in Wiff's book, he said he was, you know, he has different uh chapters i think one's addressed to how to be a good student and another one's addressed to how to be a good teacher 
And uh, the one about teaching was, this is really kind of profound. It's a simple statement. And of course, you know, I should have thought of it, but that's one of the things are maybe the most profound is uh, he said something about, you know, if you're really up against the wall with a student, you know, and you've given them like six different ways to, to approach the same concept and they're still not getting it, you don't necessarily have to blame yourself. Sometimes they're just not doing the work. <laughs> yeah. And, and as a teacher, we're trained to sort of think, oh, well, no, it must be, I must need to try a different angle with this. You know, I say, so you, you know, you sort of exhaust all of your repertoire of how to, you know, triple time or whatever it is. <laughs> and it could just be, they may not be spending enough time with it. And I thought that was a revelation, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, that, uh, that's the, you know, they're, they're all the ingredients to, to making advancement, you know, it's like, you know, you can have the best teacher in the world, but if you don't put the, the, those learn those teachings into practice, you're, you're not going to, you're not going to get good. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, so your, your career has been, um, I mean, it's been, it's, you, you've covered a lot of ground, uh, <laughs> you know, as, as you said, you know, you, you started out as the, you know, the, the high note kind of, uh, <laughs> high note jockey, uh, then got your got your legit chops together, and and uh, you've kind of been uh, you've you've made quite a name for yourself as a as a baroque player, which is uh, you know it, it seems you know to go from from Maynard to baroque that that's, that seems to be you know quite quite a journey. So um, what is it about baroque that that speaks to you that that you know that obviously because you have to love something to, to reach a, a high super high level of skill is something i think you really have to be passionate about it so yeah. uh, you know what sparked your passion in playing baroque trumpet and you know what are, what are some of the the things that, that you love about doing it and, and the advantages that it's given you and the other stuff you do yeah sure yeah that's a great question and for me um i came up uh right around the time that Nicholas Eklund was making all those great Baroque recordings. And uh, right around then, I was also, you know, getting more and more kind of freelance work. And I was doing a lot of piccolo playing in churches and playing with choirs. And, you know, I would, you know, you'd be just like everybody else. You're reading a part, you know, and it's a, it's a handle oratorio and it says forte. And if you play forte on piccolo trumpet, you have destroyed everything around you, you know, and, and uh, the choir directors or the music directors would constantly be saying, you know, less, less trumpet, you know. So I found myself just playing really, really small and that being satisfying for them, but incredibly unsatisfying as a player. And I'm not thinking, you know, from a meathead sort of perspective of I want to play loud all the time. But for me, it was one of these things like, okay, the part says forte. The part also has parts that say piano. Yet, if I give anything above sort of piano plus, it's going to, you know, destroy the singers and the rest of the orchestra. Why is that? And it just, you know, as a young, I was like 22 or something like that. And I really hadn't considered, oh, wait, this isn't the instrument this music was written for at all. It's kind of the opposite instrument of what this music was written for. Actually, the piccolo trumpet's great. I love the piccolo trumpet. I love Maurice Andre, especially, he's my favorite. Um, but in that context, it it sort of isn't what the composer had in mind at all. Um, and so when Handel was writing these parts and he wanted them to be forte, you know, he was hearing a completely different instrument in his head. So that coincided sort of with the Art of the Baroque Trumpet series coming out on Naxos that, I mentioned of Nicholas Eklund and uh, 
I got a recording of those and I heard it and it was just like the higher he went, the more beautiful and lyrical and singing the trumpet became. And the lower he went, it was sort of really kind of earthy and and kind of had a lot of body in the sound. Whereas on the piccolo trumpet, as you know, when you play in the low register, it's like, you know, <laughs> which is like totally not satisfying at all. So, and it it just sort of fixed a lot of problems. Uh, but, you know, ironically playing the right instrument turns, turns out to work. <laughs> but it fixed a lot of problems just with the repertoire. You know, when you go to play the trumpet shall sound, right? The singer, the tenor, or excuse me, the, the bass singer is, is singing, the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised. And then here you come with the trumpet. <laughs> what, what sort of resurrection is this going to inspire? You know? <laughs> so so for me, uh it it uh when you play a Baroque trumpet and you're playing in the low register that can really fill a room without taking up the sonic space of all the other instruments. And for me, that was just like, oh yeah, of course. And then as that excerpt, if you want to stick with Trumpet Shall Sound, goes higher and higher and ascends to heaven, it becomes more angelic and like I said, lyrical and hopefully beautiful. Um, and to me, that that just answered all the questions. So I was like, well, if I want to play this music, I'm going to have to get a Baroque trumpet and figure this out. And so that began just another sort of, okay, we're starting over. <laughs> here's, here's G and the staff, pia, 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 you know, and, and trying to figure it out. And, um, you know, it was one of those things where I kind of put together, okay, I can play in the high register. This instrument requires that regularly. Um, and it also requires a great deal of finesse in terms of, of playing up there because you can't really on a Baroque trumpet, you can't really sort of go after it too much, especially in the high register, because the notes are so close together. You know, sometimes, uh, you know, the nearest note can be just a half step away with the same, you know, even, you know, with using the holes, um, which is another controversial thing. It's like mouthpieces, you kind of don't want to even go there. Um, but um, for me, that was, that was just it. And then I discovered this repertoire that um, sort of, paralleled you know the 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 advancement of the high register and you know in the 20s with Louis Armstrong and then in the 30s with you know guys like Al Killian and then Cat Anderson and you know people like that coming up in the early part of the century the parts in the the repertoire just kept getting higher and higher and higher you know sort of culminating with Maynard and and guys of that ilk afterwards um, that happened in the Baroque period. That happened in the 1740s <laughs> in Germany. So, you know, composers are writing concerti. If you think, take the second Brandenburg concerto from 1721, and then you get into the 17, I'm going to maybe get this wrong, the 1740s, 1750s with Michael Haydn in, in Austria, you know, Salzburg writing for higher and higher parts. Of course, that's sort of the world record Baroque piece, the Michael Haydn D major concerto. Um, and then, you know, people in the Germanic lands were, were writing stuff that stayed up there, like uh, Reuter, you know, has a couple concertos that are tons and tons of written G's above the staff. Um, so for me, it was like, oh, there's a parallel here, too. And it was fun to sort of track that. And that's what I tried to do with that first uh, Baroque album that I put out uh, about, gosh, it was almost 15 years ago now. <laughs> Wow. 
So, I mean, did, did you see that? Um, uh, yeah, I, I've talked to a lot of people that said that like having to learn how to play pick mm -hmm. helped with their upper register playing on the B flat mm -hmm. because of, of not uh, having to, to learn to keep everything kind of more, the aperture a little more focused that you can't muscle, you know, mm -hmm. like, you know, kind of sometimes pound out the high notes, but you have to sort of finesse them a little bit more on, on pick. Have you, did you feel the same thing with Baroque that, that, uh, that as you were learning the nuances of that instrument, that it helped to refine some of your upper register playing on your B flat? Yeah, it did. And it also helped my piccolo playing a lot too, actually, because, um, I sort of just found that, um, it wasn't necessarily a technical change as much as it was sort of a conceptual musical change there because when I started playing uh, piccolo trumpet, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, I was just sort of doing whatever I could to get things to come out. Um, and that it doesn't really translate well musically if you play Baroque trumpet, because, you know, yes, you can play kind of loud in the high register there, but you can't really, um, like you say, sort of pound it out. <laughs> so um, by sort of adopting that, that, I guess, triangular sort of pyramid approach of, you know, the low register is big. And as you go higher, it gets lighter. Um, that's what I tried to emulate on the piccolo trumpet. And that's really changed how I play it a lot. And so, you know, I'm not going to be able to imitate a Baroque trumpet on the piccolo. That's not going to work. Um, but you can let the Baroque trumpet inform that instrument. And I think if you do, it sort of reaps a lot of benefits there and and it's been really helpful to me just to be able to do both of those things but i still love playing piccolo trumpet <laughs> yeah yeah Every, to each his own i hate <laughs> you hate the pick I oh no why's that right you know um i i never really played it much uh when i was younger and uh i guess that uh, i just don't have the familiarity with it uh, but I remember the first time I picked one up and I, I tried to play and it's like, nope, nope. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we all, we all reach those places. You know, we were talking about period instruments. Um, I've been playing key trumpet a little bit and, and performed Haydn a few times on it now. Um, and that's an entirely different beast. You know, it works completely differently, or I shouldn't say completely differently, but the total opposite, uh, of the, the valve trumpet. Um, where, you know, on the valve trumpet, you press a valve down, your instrument gets longer, right? You've added a certain amount of tubing. Well, if you play the key trumpet, you press a key down, you're actually opening a hole, which makes your instrument shorter. So it's just kind of everything is backwards. And it's like, whoa, I pushed this down and I went higher. Wait, how did that work? You know, it's so it takes you a little while to get your brain wrapped around it. And I was talking to Gabriel Casona about getting dexterity on the because he, to me, the greatest key trumpet player in the world. He's, I think he's one of the greatest trumpet players in general in the world, but especially key trumpet. I mean, he's playing all these Italian pieces that are just ridiculously difficult on the key trumpet. And it sounds like, you know, he's playing a cornet or something. It's just unbelievable. But, um, you know, when I was really trying to get started on that, I asked him about, you know, what do you do for dexterity? He's like, oh, I just do Clark too, you know? <laughs> so he's playing Clark too on the key trumpet, which is, kind of ridiculous um but i've been trying to to do that and it really helps but anyway what i was trying to get to was with finding your limit is um i really wanted to play the cornetto because i thought what a gorgeous instrument there's all this repertoire you know and it'd be a fun thing to just learn but my i don't have really big hands 
and the stretch on that instrument to cover all the holes, I couldn't do it. I tried for like a month and it was just like, no, I'm just not going to do it. <laughs> so, I have friends, you know, Chris Quapis, who also lives here. Uh, she's a magnificent uh, cornetto player. But, uh, you know, and I don't know that her hands are any bigger than mine, but she's just sort of stuck to it and loves it. And so I'll just stay out of her way. <laughs> Let her play those things. Uh, you know, you, you, you find your lane and, and you stay in it. So, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I tried to do a lot of different things, but that's, uh, you know, that's beyond me. Well, and, and that, that was going to be my next point. I mean, you, you do have this, uh, you know, this very repertoire that you do play. I mean, uh, you're, you're doing the Baroque stuff, you're doing the jazz stuff, you're doing, you know, uh, are you still, uh, let's see, you were working with, uh, was it Dallas, Dallas Brass? Dallas Winds, uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Formerly the Dallas Wind Symphony. Yeah. Okay. So you're, you know, you're, you're doing all this stuff. I mean, it, well, which was it, technically, I guess if you're going to be a freelance trumpet player, that's, you know, that's what you should be doing. Um, but uh, do you, do you see um, like, uh, well, I guess I, I'll, I'll ask two questions. It'll be a two-parter. Uh, one, and I know this is kind of like asking, you know, who's your favorite child, but what, you know, what what's your what's your favorite uh mm. kind of expression for music uh and then uh secondly uh how do you manage uh, i know that you know that, that the fundamental technique of playing the trumpet is consistent across the board but there are definitely stylistic differences and approaches that you have to use uh you know uh, depending on the on the style that you're playing, so uh, how do you how do you keep your your mindset clear and your technique clear as you go from from uh, style to style? Yeah, so um, you're right about being a freelancer. I mean, I think that's what we all should be doing, and I think that's becoming more and more common for people to do that. And you know, for a long time, people have played different styles, obviously. Um, but um, for me, going, well, first of all, you asked about a favorite. I mean, this may be a sort of a cop-out answer, but for me, it's really whatever I'm doing at that minute is, is what my favorite thing is. And I think that might be part of the key to being able to do different things well, is that you have to really love what you're doing at that, at that time. Um, I mean, there are things that I love more about certain aspects of certain types of playing than others. Um, I love playing lead in a big band. I mean, that's something that I wish I could do more of, but it's just, you know, it's 2022 and there aren't many big bands, you know, going, especially, you know, because of the finances involved, it's always been a difficult thing to run financially, but that's something I really love to do. I love to play. Um, I love to play piccolo trumpet, in in a brass band i haven't done much of that either but i really love doing it when i've gotten the chance to do um i love playing uh i really like playing baroque solos with orchestra on on baroque trumpet that's that's something that i that i've enjoyed getting to do like if it's Molter second concerto or brandenburg two or something like that where it's you know that's that's just something that that um kind of gets me going um and you know as an improviser you know, if I'm playing, if I'm playing sort of uh, mildly modern <laughs> jazz, that's like my favorite thing to do too. But I also like playing the early stuff. So it's just one of those things where um, 
for me, it's really hard to pick the, the thing that I like the most. I just really like playing the trumpet, to be honest. So it's almost like I'm going to figure out all these different styles so I can play it as much as I can and not have to say no if somebody calls me, you know. Um, that's something that I tell my students all the time, is, or I, I told my students all the time, I should say, was that, you know, if it's hard enough to make a living as a freelancer, you want to be able to say yes when you're lucky enough to get called. And you want to have the experience in your pocket so that when you do get called, you're making a good impression at whatever that call is, you know. Um, and so to, to do that, I think you have to sort of go through a period of obsession with all these different genres and uh, a period of mastery may be a, a better way of, of putting it to where you're really invested in this thing where, you know, uh, like I was talking about that, that time in my early 20s where I really was focused on playing the Baroque trumpet and maybe let some other stuff go. I mean, I couldn't let everything go because I was still in graduate school and I had to play in the orchestra and everything. But um, if you go through a period where you're, um, let's say, working on uh, developing technique on the Baroque trumpet, but also exploring all this repertoire, looking at, um, you know, all the Handel oratorios or, or the, you know, all the works of Purcell, or, uh, you know, if you're finding all of these solos, like, wow, there's so much here I need to work on. And you try to get some expertise across the board there. And then, you know, maybe you get a little bit tired of that or something else takes your attention. And then you really focus on that thing. Um, I think once you've done that, you've worn in some grooves in your brain, right? And then when it comes time, okay, okay, well, it's Monday, I'm playing in the pit for a show that groove is from this every summer that I played in summer stock musicals in college. Okay. I'm going to kind of fall into that groove and then, okay, now I'm playing at a church on piccolo trumpet. Okay. There's that place. And it's like sort of just shifting gears with a manual transition tra transmission, I should say, um, you know, that's sort of what it feels like. If that makes mm -hmm. any sense at all. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, that's, and that is the, the learning process, the mastery process, you know, wearing putting those uh those grooves in those neural grooves and uh you know so that that things become habitual but um yeah what what I found interesting about what you just said though was uh that like you're saying you know being just being there in that gig in that moment and uh, and finding the thing that you love about it and I think sometimes that's where uh, a lot of people get jaded you know mm -hmm. it's there uh, I, I think it's Eckhart, Eckhart Tolle said uh, uh, that that the his definition of stress was being here but wanting to be there, uh, <laughs> and and I think sometimes it happens to people. It's like you know you're you're on a you're on a church gig or you're in, you're in the pit somewhere and you're just thinking of how much you would rather be uh, on a stage somewhere or in the studio somewhere. Uh, so you can't be in that moment and enjoying what you're actually doing because you're wanting to be somewhere that you're not. So I, I love that that idea. Yeah, that's that's a great way of putting it. And and you see that, you know, we've all seen people who perhaps stayed in one specific gig too long. You know, I remember uh, my first real professional gig was working on a cruise ship 
that was ironically based in in New Orleans because I hadn't ever been there before. Um, and being from small town Southern Illinois, you know, to go from there to New Orleans was a big change when I was, gosh, I think I was 19 or 20 when I first started working on the ships. And I was like the baby in the band, you know, there were some other kind of college age kids, but, but, and then there were like the lifers <laughs> on the, on the ship. And, and some of them were really nice to me. And some of them were just, I don't, it wasn't necessarily directed at me. They were just pissed off that they were there and you could tell, and it was like, Oh damn it. We're doing this tune again. And, you know, for me, cause everything was new to me. I was like, Oh, this is great. You know, <laughs> but you know, you could see the jaded folks and, and I, it was a good lesson to me because I was like, okay, these guys are getting to make music every day. They live on a cruise ship. They're seeing beautiful places every single day in the Caribbean is where we were. And yet they're still unhappy. So, you know, I think then I learned how important variety was, you know, and, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, you can't, you can't get too bored if, you know, on Monday you're playing, like I said, a musical and, and Wednesday, maybe you've got a rehearsal for a church gig and then Friday night, you've got a big band hit and then Sunday morning, you've got another church gig, you know, it's just like moving from here to here to here and there's no time to get jaded. There's no space for it. And, and I kind of like that. Maybe it's musical ADD. I don't know. <laughs> that could be, that could be. Um, so as you've, uh, you've been making your transition into uh, this new chapter of your life, um, one of the things that, that you've picked up uh, is your, your blogging. So uh, <laughs> the, the blog master, Brian Shaw, uh, and your, uh, I love love your uh, your no BS uh, kind of thing. Uh, so, uh, so your your BS stuff. Um, I read your your I read both of your blog. I read your entire library, your entire catalog. Both of them. <laughs> I read both of them. It's a new blog. What can I say? <laughs> it, it, it's great. It's great stuff. Um, but. Uh, you, you, of course, uh, started out with a very controversial topic and uh, followed it up with uh, digging the hole probably a little deeper in some ways with that. Um, but what I got out of it, and even with so far in our conversation, it's the idea that I guess as Bobby Shu says, your own, you're, you're, you are your own best teacher, and the, the way that you learn something is that you have to learn it. So there, there's always this level of experimentation and uh, you know, like you were saying about you know, becoming obsessed or <laughs> diving into something to, to figure it out. Mm -hmm. uh, so how, as you were in your, in your previous, not so, uh, not so <laughs> long ago career as, as a, a, a university professor, uh, and I'm sure that you will continue teaching people and, you know, that's, that's part of your DNA. Um, how do you go about uh, balancing, walking that that fine line between uh, the teacher of, you know, showing the technique, showing, having a pedagogical approach, mm -hmm. and then also inspiring and empowering people to figure out their own way? This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. 
In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Well, that's a great question. I mean, I think at the bottom of it is what you what you let off with is that anything you learn you have to learn yourself. I mean, there's nobody uh, that can play it for you. You have to be the person playing it. Therefore, you have to have found this yourself. And that blog post, I think, was was just sort of this epiphany that I had. In I was practicing, and I and I kind of was warming up, and I kind of you know went for the low register, the high register, and down. And it just occurred to me as like, you know, and it wasn't anything crazy. I mean, lots of people could could do what I did. But not everybody could do that. And it struck me as like, well, that isn't that interesting that that there are trumpet players that can't do this? And aren't I lucky that I figured out how to play high? And and then I was like, that's a good thing to write about. And it just sort of occurred to me. And I've been talking with Ashley Hall, who I'm sure you know, um, teaches at Longy, great soloist and, and pedagogue. Um, and uh, Ashley is also an amazing career coach and so I've been kind of talking with her throughout this transition and you know I was talking about some of the stuff that we've been talking about where it's like you know I'm, I have these thoughts but I'm sort of afraid to express them because you know trouble players are so damned opinionated and they all think they're right and you know I don't want to come off of some charlatan that doesn't know what he's doing you know and you know we all have a little bit of imposter syndrome I think too and yeah. you know and and like you know and I was and she was just like, well, you know, if you just talk about your own experience, no one can argue with that. You can't say, no, you didn't do that because fuck you. Yeah, I did. <laughs> Actually, you, know, you weren't there. <laughs> so for, for me, I, that just sort of opened up this, you know, what? I'm just going to say whatever the hell I think. And I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings or anything like that, of course. But it's it's more just I think there's a certain amount of peer pressure within the college teaching industry. I know you interviewed Brad Good, who has a lot of thoughts about this, and he's obviously a great trumpet player and a great uh, teacher too. And, and he and I disagree about the mouthpiece thing, but I respect him a lot. And, you know, he obviously doing just fine. So <laughs> nothing to say there. But um, he has, I think, a, a similar sort of sort of thought. And you, and you have to figure these things out sometimes on your own and sometimes what you come up with your own goes against the prevailing wisdom of the trumpet teacher guru establishment whatever that is you know I, I think there's been a movement lately where people are pushing out of that you can see even you know I saw your interview with Peter Bond too where you know he's really doing some different sorts of or he's he's establishing some different ways of thinking about playing the trumpet and I love that. You know, I've tried some of the stuff. Some of it works for me. Some of it, uh, maybe I just haven't figured it out yet. I'm not going to say it doesn't work because obviously it does for him. He's amazing uh, as well. Uh, but so I guess with students, to get back to your question, I'm sorry, I keep going off on these tangents. But um, for me, I think it's most important that they see me do it. So that I have a student and I play a lot in lessons and I I always found that to be really helpful when I was a student to have a teacher sit there and 
play it for you. It's just there's something about the mechanics of the trumpet being activated in the same room as you are that can kind of make you go, oh, yeah, that. And sometimes it's not even a thing you can describe. It's just, you know, I remember being in jazz camp in, in uh, high school and Chuck Parrish, who's a great lead player in Chicago, uh, I was talking, I was kind of frustrated because I couldn't play anything above a G above high C. It would just shut off. And I just heard him play an A in the room in front of me. And something about hearing him do that helped me to do it. There was like a strange osmosis that happened. And so I've taken that into my teaching and maybe I play too much in lessons, but I like to show my students, no, it's just like this, you know, and to have something that maybe is a wall for them be broken down right in front of them, I think can be empowering. And uh, I don't really understand necessarily the neurological process that makes that happen, but I think there's something to it and it helps. But then if that doesn't work, yeah, I've got to have some pedagogy ready to go. And I've got to be, okay, this exercise, keep doing this, do it slowly, do it every day, 10 times at this tempo, and let's talk next week and see if, see where you've gotten with it, you know, or some other strategy. Uh, but for me, that the, the the two have to work together, you know. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, you you're absolutely right. I mean, the um, there's there's just something about being with someone, uh, and I, I think there's maybe two things that go on. One, like for me when something's difficult, if I can see somebody do it and not, not like separated on stage or, you know, on a recording or something like that, but I can be there right there next to them while they're doing it. And it just, it kind of breaks down that, well, it can't be done sort of thing. And it's just, you already, you're, you're going to say, okay, well, they can do it. Then it, it's, then it leads me into looking or listening for key, for clues. You know, it may be, like something in the sound it may be watching the person and seeing like you know when you know like so many other people having trouble breaking that that barrier the g to the a you know crossing that that break you know and, and you see somebody and they're like oh well you know i push so hard to do it but you know he seems to be easing back a little bit oh right yeah or you know just just these little tiny things you know or, or you know watching fingerings or, you know, just, uh, it just changes in the body. So the, yeah, there's so much that you can learn that way. And, um, you know, that's where I think having, having, uh, a teacher who is open to those kind of, uh, processes, you know, that, that has all the tools in the toolbox, they can, they can talk about it. They can show it, you know, right. Yeah. And, and, you know, I remember, and, and there's also certain things that you can't really put words around. There are certain things that, like you were talking about sound, like, you know, I got to sit next for almost four years, sit next to Jim Thompson once a week and hear that glorious sound that that man makes. I mean, you know, it, he, the, the sound is so big that it kind of, and it's not loud, it just, it activates so many overtones in the room that it just feels like his trumpet's going to explode in his hands. You know, it's, it's amazing. And I've heard other great players that sound like that. But if you get really close, you kind of hear like a little bit of, you know, and it's like sitting next to a great violinist, you know, out in the hall, you hear this beautiful singing, rich sound, but sometimes up close, it's a little scratchy and like, 
wow, that doesn't sound like what I expected it to sound like. And then when you go into the practice room and you've got that sound in your head, it's like, no, it's okay if I've got a little scratch of the sound. That might be some overtones that I'm not used to hearing. It sort of can open you up in a way that um, you wouldn't have otherwise if someone was just saying precisely, okay, do this, do this, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's that's true. So, uh, so let me ask you then, um, why are you so happy that you can play high notes? <laughs> <laughs> because I don't have to figure it out again. <laughs> no. Uh, well, I think this was sort of in, in my, my second post, but um, it, it opens up a lot of repertoire, obviously. If you can't play high, there's certain things that are just off the list all of a sudden. Um, and I think it also... You know, I've watched other trumpet players, and it, it can be a great source of stress for them when something high comes up, and they're just not sure if it's going to come out. And these are can be really great players who can get around the instrument beautifully, but there's sort of a ceiling there. And, you know, uh, it's one of those things where, you know, I'm just grateful that I spent the time in my youth to figure that out, to figure out what it felt like to do that so that I can always go back to that place. Um, and I'm not saying I don't ever miss a high note because I certainly do, but but you know where where it should have been at least, right? <laughs> and, and, you know, if you've never sort of experimented to the point where, oh, wow, that F just popped out. Oh, that was cool. Let me see if I can do that again. Um, it always re remains, maybe it has this mystery left with it or it sort of has a, a certain amount of um, fear attached to it. And, you know, that's no way to go about playing the trumpet, I think, if you're, you know, afraid. And so for me, that, that's that been helpful. And it's also just sort of been a, uh, a little notable part of my career that I can do that. Um, I'll tell you the greatest compliment I ever got, <laughs> which was uh, we had uh, Paquito de Rivera to LSU and um, he came and was working with some of the students and then uh, the late great Derek Gordon, who was uh, head of the Arts Council of, of Baton Rouge or the, the River Study Jazz Masters, um, brought Paquito in. And after the students left, he said, hey, Brian, do you want to go get some dinner with me and Paquito? And I said, well, yeah, that sounds great. I'd love to. You know, and I just wanted to hear about, you know, Arturo and the days in Cuba and all, all that kind of stuff. And uh, he ended up talking about Baroque music with me. And he was going on and on about all these pieces that you loved. and was practicing all this Baroque repertoire on the clarinet. And my CD had just come out. And I said at the end of dinner, I said, you know, I just made this. If you'd like to listen, he's like, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to listen to it. <laughs> and I said, OK. And I gave him one, you know, gave him a hug as we went out to the car. And then the next night was his concert in Baton Rouge, and he was surrounded by a bunch of high school students signing CDs after the concert. So I didn't want to interrupt him, but I kind of kind of tried to catch his eye, you know, I kind of go, went like this. And, and he saw me and said, you, <laughs> said, I listened to your CD today. I said, because I, I thought, you know, he'd probably just throw it in a suitcase or in the trash or whatever. <laughs> you know? Yeah, sure, I listened to your CD. He said, I listened to your CD today. I said, you did? He said, yeah. I listened to that one piece and it went higher and higher and higher. He's talking about the Michael Haydn D major concerto that goes up to the, the high concert A. He said, it went higher and higher and higher. He said, 
I almost shit my pants. <laughs> <laughs> now, I wish I could use that in my bio. I don't think it would fly. But, um, you know, so just little things like that, 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 you know, you're able to do. And I'm thankful that, that I can do some of that stuff. Um, certainly not, you know, Wayne Bergeron or somebody like that. But just if, if you've got some currency up there, I think it, it really helps you and, and opens up some some doors that wouldn't otherwise be open. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think that, uh, you know, it's just always good to have all the tools that you can you can have at your disposal. And sure. you know, like you're saying the way that that repertoire has changed, whether it's, uh, you know, the, the, what happened in the Baroque period of, of you know, writing uh, higher, higher, faster and louder for them. <laughs> and, 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 you know, our current situation, like you're, you're mentioning Wayne, you know, when, when uh, you've got people like, you know, Wayne and Roger Ingram and, you know, some of these other, you know, name lead players that, that are, that are currently um, setting the bar for us, you know, it, it's, uh, it, you go into, I, I just had this experience uh, the other night uh, uh, with a, uh, you know, a cover band <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, pulling out a, a tune where they had a Jerry Hay horn arrangement on it. <laughs> and I'm saying, you know, well, you know, Jerry, yeah, Jerry and the boys did set the bar for a lot of for us. Sure. Yeah. But, you know, the thing is, is that, yeah, yeah, I, I I wish I could play like that. If I could play like that, I wouldn't be here. I'd be in LA <laughs> playing with, with Jerry and Gary. Same here. Same here. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, at least, you know, having a, a modicum of ability to play that kind of music and in, in, in that register, uh, it's helpful because, you know, that's, that's the standard now. You know, you can't be in a bar band and not be able to at least play a, a high F sharp because you got to play September. <laughs> <laughs> Or you know you, you're not. Right. Uh, uh, I'm thinking. I'm thinking of uh, Shining Star. You know you got to be able to hit oh, yeah. that, that that high F sharp in, in Shining Star. You got to you know you got to be able to play. You know certain things that you just have to be able to play. If you're a big band player, then a lead player, then you know you don't have to be able to play a double C. But there are a lot of charts where you know you are going to be called on to to play those G's and those A's consistently. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, and and those guys, you know, and, and Louis Dowdswell, you know, there's a whole new generation of, of oh, yeah. folks, you know, way younger than me. I, I remember going over to the Royal Academy in London where Louis was still a student, and and my friend Nick Smart says, "Check out this guy," you know. <laughs> Meanwhile, you know, Jacob Collier is also in school there, you know. So like, there's some real monsters walking around that place. Yeah, the uh, the guys that are on that London music scene are absolutely insane. Yeah, I've gotten to be friends with with Tom Walsh. Tom, oh yeah, oh scary. And, yeah, and, and did you see? Don't look up. Did you see the? I think it was Louis and Tom playing at the opening. All that was just screaming, beautiful trumpet playing yeah. at the opening of that. And such nice guys, you know. Just, For sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. We had a couple of pints with Louis once, and uh, I think Tom was there too. But um. Yeah, super nice down to earth guys. Um, and I remember being over there, even speaking of Jacob Collier, like going to oral skills class. And because my friend Nick uh, is the head of jazz there, so he has to kind of go observe, you know, different teachers and uh, sitting in an oral skills class. And as a class, they're transcribing a take six tune. I forget which one it was. And they got to a certain chord. <laughs> 
and you know they're they're kind of doing it out loud so the teachers you know got a, a dry erase marker and you know they're kind of sketching out all six parts here you know it's like we get to this chord and i've got perfect pitch and i think i've got pretty decent ears you know and i got there and i was like yeah i think there's you know and i could pick out you know about four of the notes but then kind of stumped because it's you know six guys singing the blend is unbelievable you know right. is that an overtone is that a note it's hard to tell and uh, so you know he's kind of going through the class and the class is like well i think it's this i think it's this there's just like five or six people in the room you know well about 20 minutes into class jacob collier walks in and he's got like headphones on you know he's kind of you know puts his headphones down and and the, the teacher's like oh jacob's so nice you can make it <laughs> you know <laughs> and and he says we're transcribing this take six thing and he, and he plays the snippet of the recording and jacob goes oh right, right it's just this and he sits down at the piano plunk six notes and everybody's like yeah that's it you know unbelievable ears i mean this is once in a generation kind of uh, talent we're talking about and louis too obviously but yeah those guys are, are incredible yeah the kind of guys that you, you love to listen to and you just want to take them out back and <laughs> Them in the trunk of a Chevy or something. <laughs> Maybe they'll get us a gig someday. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, um, so speaking of 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 uh, the Royal Academy, uh, you are have you finished working on the book? <laughs> this is a common question, and no, you would think since we've started it in 2014 that it would be finished by now. But uh, no, we're writing a, a biography uh, for your listeners of Kenny Wheeler, the great uh, jazz trumpet player and composer originally born in Canada. Um, well, originally born, just born in Canada. Um, and then moved to uh, the UK uh, when he was uh, 20 years old, 19, uh, 22 years old, 1952. And so uh, Nick and I have been working on this biography, like I said, for gosh, it's been, this is our eighth year working on it. Um, and uh, we're getting very close. Uh, there's so much research that we've done and so many original interviews. I was counting up the other day. I think we've done 112 interviews for this book with different people. Uh, incredible performers like Chris Potter, uh, you know, uh, Jack DeJanet, Jan Garbarek, uh, Dave Holland has given us probably like eight hours. The great singer Norma Winston has given us a similar amount of time. People are People loved Kenny so much that they would just give very freely of their time. Um, and uh, I think it's going to be a really interesting story. We're going to have to edit it down like crazy because I think we're up to about 600 pages now. <laughs> and I'm reading a biography of Lincoln right now, which is 600 pages. And, and I think maybe in terms of importance, you know, trumpet players, Lincoln, um, it might, might be something there. But you know, this will probably be the only biography of of uh, Kenny that that's written. And uh, he had such an interesting life coming up in Canada during the Depression, or right at the tail end of the Depression. Uh, his family moved around a lot. His his mother had some problems uh, with alcohol, and so like he was one of seven children. It's pretty stressful upbringing, and um, so out of that sort of turbulent traumatic in some ways childhood he became this really powerful singular voice as a musician not only as a trumpet and flugelhorn player but as a composer and uh, so and he was very quiet he was a quiet personality didn't say much one of his 
famous quotes about him is, I don't say much, but when I do, I don't say much. <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, just a really fascinating uh, person. And I, and I think uh, people, even if you're, you know, if you're not that familiar with his music, I, th I think would be moved by his story. Well, and, and I think Kenny is one of those guys that, you know, not everybody is hip to him, mm -hmm. but you should be hip to him. That's my mission, man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just remember the first time I, I mean, I actually, like, someone said, no, you have to listen to this. And, like, and mm. like, holy crap, who is this dude? And, you know, starting to dive in a little bit deeper, it's like, yeah, okay, this is, like you said, the singular voice. It's, it, and his compositional stuff is just amazing. So, uh, yeah, I, that that I think is going to be a, a good uh, good addition to uh, the the must read for for all trumpet players. Uh, you know, just uh, you know, helping people to to see the the possibilities. And, oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah, and and you know, he he has given courage to so many people to be able to sound like themselves. You know, and and that was one of the things that he got from Booker Little. You know, he said the first time he heard Booker Little. You know, he didn't necessarily want to copy Booker in terms of his sound. He wanted a copy of the approach and having the freedom to sort of reject, not reject necessarily, but depart from bebop and go your own way. And, uh, you know, I think for him, that was really life-changing because you see, you know, not long after he, he hears Booker for the first time, this, you know, six months, his playing is just he basically becomes fully formed Kenny Wheeler in that six months. And before he sounds like this kind of quirky guy who's trying to play bebop and not quite making it, you know, um, it's kind of, you know, you might compare, I'm not trying to talk badly about miles at all for sure, but you know, you hear those early recordings of miles where you, you know, you can tell he's hearing something and he's, but he's trying to keep up with Charlie Parker and my God, who, who could do that? <laughs> and, and, you know, and when he finally sort of departs from that and goes his own way, right? And that happens fairly quickly in the mid to late 50s. And then he becomes Miles. He's not, not this trumpet player playing with somebody else. He's Miles. You right. know, and I think Kenny sort of went through the same thing after he heard Booker Little. Well, I, I think, and, and that even ties into, you know, what we've talked about uh, in terms of development, you know, of, you, know, you you have to learn for yourself and i think that's the the other part of it too is you have to learn to be yourself and especially in, in the world of jazz uh, you know it's it, where where it is a music it's an art form that is based on creativity and uniqueness and expression um you know but but then to you know how do how do you do that how do you come up with your own unique voice Right. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a question I may never answer for myself. <laughs> that's, that's a tough one. You know, I think we have, I was talking about this in the context of orchestral musicians and trumpet playing, you know, and, and this is not an original thought by any means, and you, I'm sure you've heard other people say this, but you know, you used to be able to listen to a recording and go, Oh, that's Cleveland. That's Chicago. That's Philly. That's, you know, New York, that's Berlin, whatever. And now I think, we've become so homogenized that, you know, it's really hard to tell orchestras apart, you know, and, and, 
even principal trumpet players. There, there are some differences, but I think we sound a lot more alike than we used to. Um, and maybe that's the internet. I don't know. I mean, everyone blames everything on the internet, but <laughs> I think it's the availability of recordings and then the quickness with which we can just hear, you know, you scroll, scroll through your Facebook feed. And if you've got friends from around the country, around the world, you know, you might hear somebody playing in Finland here. And then there's, then there's Tom Hooten playing, you know, and then there's, you know, then there's Wayne playing this, you know, and it's like, we, we sort of end up, I don't know, it sort of goes into the same blender somehow. And we all come out sort of similar. And um, that's that's a problem where I'm thinking, and you know, I don't know, I don't know how to solve that problem. Maybe it's not a problem, but I, for me, and maybe this is just me getting older, but I I like hearing different personalities, you know, even even in classical music, I I think that's something that I remember. I when I was coming up, I was just on sort of the the last few years of Bud Herseth's career you know, in terms of being able to go hear him play principal with Chicago Symphony. But still, you know, I heard a Mahler 5 that just knocked my socks off. And nobody else would have sounded like that except Bud. You know, and and there's a certain amount of that that I think maybe we've lost. I, don't, I, I hope I'm wrong about that. But um, it would be it would be nice to to have the world of of, of trumpet playing be you know, be a little bit more original between from player to player and and for it to be okay for people to sound different. You know, like I was saying, there's sort of this unexpected or uh, unspoken uh, thing in college teaching where, you know, there's 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 a fair amount of, of conformity that happens there that um, I wish more people would sort of break from. And I feel that way too. There's a certain amount of conformity in an orchestral playing now. That's easy for me to say, not sitting in the hot seat of some major orchestra too, you know? So I'm, I'm sure my friends who do that would take issue with what I'm saying, but there's a certain amount of it that, that I hear, you know? Yeah. Well, and, and when I was talking with Peter, uh, he, he kind of was, uh, he made, a statement that I, I found to be real interesting uh, when he was talking about the the Mets orchestra and you know when they do orchestral literature and how they have a completely different sound than anybody else doing that literature and it, it's I, I think that's great because I mean that's what you want you want to hear but but somehow we've kind of gotten stuck in this uh, we have this one definitive version. It, whether it be Mahler or mm -hmm. whether it be, you know, kind of blue or whether it be, you know, what, whatever, whatever song it is, whatever genre it is, we have this definitive version mm -hmm. of what it sounds like. And, and we all are chasing that as opposed to, well, how can I make a unique presentation of this same information? How can I, how can I add to the legacy of this? Um, and in, in a way, it's, it's kind of sad. Because I think you said that you feel like uh, you know people are people are chasing a, a, an idea uh, instead of adding to the idea, and I don't know. Right. Yeah, I, I I do think maybe there's something that's lost. I mean, it's easy to say that and and not acknowledge all the things that have been gained. I mean, here we are sitting because you know I'm going to have this really enjoyable conversation with you because of the internet, you know, 
uh, we, I could keep up with my family in Illinois during the pandemic because of the damn internet. <laughs> you know, I could, I can, when I'm out of town, I read to my son, you know, I pull up a Harry Potter book and, and read to him because of the internet. You know, I can, I can do that. Um, so there are wonderful things that, that have happened for us that bring us together. I just think we should be more mindful of the things that, that maybe we're losing before they're completely gone. That's great that you're talking to Peter Bond about that because, I mean, you think about <laughs> all the great principal trumpets of, of the Met, you know, Mel Broyles and, and uh, Mark Gould and, and now Billy Hunter and, and uh, uh, David Krause. You know, those guys are just unbelievable musicians and, and very, very different sounding players too. So that I love that individuality. That's, I think that's the way it should be. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm kind of like, you know, if, if it's always going to be just this one version, then just I'll download that. And then anytime I want to listen to it, I'll just listen to that, you know? I, well, right. And, and I, I, you know, I think that's maybe part of the reason that the people aren't coming out to hear orchestras as much because we're all chasing this perfection instead of chasing originality or an artistic statement. You know, uh, my old teacher, Ray Sasaki, when I was at the University of Texas, um, Ray, <laughs> Ray had a great way of putting things. He still does. And uh, one of the things we were talking about Herseth one day, he said, Bud is an orchestral improviser. And I love that. <laughs> I just thought, you know, because every time he played something, it would be different. You know, it wasn't like, okay, this is how I play Petrushka, and here's how it is. You know, it was like, well, it's Thursday. Here's how I play Petrushka today. <laughs> I really dig that, you know. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, like I didn't have my second latte this morning, so. <laughs> it's going to be a little slower, sorry. <laughs> All right, yeah, I ate Taco Bell. It's going to be a lot faster. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh all right well um we have a few uh stock segments that we have to get uh get to oh, cool. in our yeah. time today so um our first segment uh is uh brought to us by barkley microphones uh it's called sound off and this is about uh, your approach to trumpet sound and i think it's real interesting you know you, you have a very good perspective uh you know with all of the genres that you cover and especially you know our discussions about uh baroque trumpet and piccolo trumpet and b flat trumpet and uh you know all of them have a slightly unique sound mm -hmm. so um you know how do you how do you utilize uh the lessons that you've learned from these different instruments to to develop a concept of sound and, and how do you go about sharing that sound or those concepts with other people hmm. Well, I think just pedagogically going back to the, <laughs> the controversial buzzing thing is just finding the balance between air and lip on each note and making the most resonant and efficient approach to that pitch as you can. Because then once you've got sort of the max for you, let's say, because that's going to be different for everybody, the max amount of, of uh, efficiency and, and resonance. On, on that note, then you can start to shape it and shade it, you know? And we do that not just with the tone quality, of course, I mean, that's part of it, but it's happening with articulation, it's happening with sort of vowel shape in the mouth, it's happening with, with you know, varying degrees of abdominal support too, you know? Um, there's, there's a way to play a high C that just sort of sings, 
you know, it has a little bit of vibrato and has a lightness to it. And then you engage sort of the core and it's got, it's got some zip on it. Right. So, and it's still the same pitch. It's just changing the, the volume is changing. The articulation is changing the, the amount of overtones on that note. So um, for me though, I, I try not to be super analytical about it. Um, in terms of, okay, well, now I'm playing Baroque trumpet, I'm going to allow for these overtones. You know, for me, it's just sort of having a sound concept through listening a ton. I mean, my recording collection is ridiculous, which I haven't brought from Louisiana yet, but it's it's a lot. So I think the more you listen, the more you're going to be able to go, okay, this is, this is where I want to go with that. All right, cool. Um, all right, so our next segment is... Uh... Geared Up is brought to us by Venture Mouthpieces. Venture, where technology, design, and craftsmanship intersect. Use the code TrumpetGurus21 to get 10% off your order. Uh, Geared Up is our discussion of our favorite topic, besides high notes, <laughs> gear, which usually those two go hand in hand. Um, but again, uh, this is more about your concepts of gear mm -hmm. and uh, how, you know, the, like the relationship of, of gear to the player and to the job because uh you know not all jobs are require the same gear so you know what is what's your approach to the gear that you use and and the advice that you give uh to players that are maybe looking to fine-tune their setups yeah i might be the world's worst person to be talking to about this i'm sort of uh you know i just sort of play what i have um but um you know i went through a, a period for a while where i was looking for a new mouthpiece just a few months ago, that was sort of a COVID project. Ah, I should probably find it. A, a new kind of all around B flat C trumpet mouthpiece. And I tried a couple of things and they sounded okay for a few days and then they just sort of stopped working. And so I went back to the same Warburton 3MD with a 10 backbore that I've played since college. And I was like, oh yeah, that fixed it. <laughs> So it's one of those things where I just sort of stuck with this this one sort of setup for 20 years um, for B flat. Um, now, if I'm playing lead, I'll, I'll play a, something shallower, about the same diameter. I'll use a four EMC, which is a custom that Terry makes, <clears throat> which is also what I use for piccolo trumpet, believe it or not. Um, but those things sort of work similarly for me. Um, but I'm a Yamaha artist, so I play a Yamaha. Uh, B flat. It's uh, the the LA version, Wayne's uh, design, or that he helped design. And um, I'm looking forward to trying the second one of those. That might be my new B flat that I'm getting pretty soon. So I haven't tried it yet, but I've heard really good things. Have you tried it? I have not tried it. Uh, yeah. I've uh, had uh, the pleasure of hearing a few people play it live, and yeah, it sounds great. Okay, I love this horn, and I think it's really versatile. It it lets you make a lot of different sounds. It's it's a great lead trumpet, of course, but it but it tends to, for me, I don't know. I feel like I've got a lot of shades of both dynamics, and um, there's a lot of room to adjust pitch. I feel like so you're not kind of locked in to a certain place, and for me that just works. Um, and uh, for baroque trumpet, um, I might be in the market for a new one of those too. I'm playing an Egger right now. Uh, an Egger Baroque trumpet that was made in Basel, uh, Switzerland, and it's um, it has a Haas bell, which is a really wide bell with a wide flare, and um, and I like that okay, but I'm I'm starting to think that maybe some something new will help. Um, I've just always been a person, and the reason I said I'm like the worst person to ask this question uh, to is um, 
I've always sort of just said, well, the problem is probably me. <laughs> it's not the instrument. And you you can, I think you can go too far in either direction with that sort of approach because sometimes, no, the equipment really does suck and you need to get something, something else happening. Um, so, uh, but yeah, that's, that's sort of my approach is sort of blame myself first. <laughs> and then if I really am up against a wall, then I'm going to go ahead and, and, um, and try to, to swap out some equipment, but time is usually the best tell of whether that's going to stick or not, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that honeymoon period thing with, especially with mouthpieces, that's a, that's a big thing is, uh, you know, I, oh yeah. Yeah. You, you try something and it, and it works great for, you know, the first day or two and then, then it doesn't. Well, yeah, I mean, not to bring up Wayne again, I'm not trying to drop names here, but but he came to Clang, that's my, my friend Nick says Clang every time someone drops a name, that's the sound of it hitting the floor. And, and uh, so, uh, but Wayne had come to LSU, we had him as a guest artist with the jazz ensemble that I directed, and, and you know, I, I was saying, man, I, I need, need a new lead mouthpiece. He was like, oh, you should try this one. And he had his GR, you know, that that he designed or that he and Gary Racky designed, you know, and, uh, you know, kind of cleaned out the mouthpiece and I put it in. And man, I played a scale from low C up to D above double high C and back. And I thought, good God, I have to get one of these. This is the most amazing thing I've ever played. So of course I shelled out the money. I bought a couple of them. You know, what Wayne has sort of a, a studio when one's a little bit different. And so, I tried both of them when I got to the house. I couldn't do anything on them. <laughs> so I've spent, you know, $400 on paperweights now, you know. <laughs> but it's funny, you know, but I pull them out every once in a while. And and gradually, you know, I've, I've gotten a little better at it. But it was just amazing that instantaneous, like, holy crap, because I could, I'd never play a B that well. You know, I can play a B flat, I can play a double C. But but the B, there's just like a weird range crack there for me. And boy, it came out beautifully on that mouthpiece. I was like, finally, something solved this problem. And then, you know, of course, I get my own and it doesn't have all Wayne's DNA on it. So exactly. probably that's <laughs> probably the problem, you know. Yeah, he, he has those those D's pre-installed at the factory. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, all right, we got one final segment. And this is uh, our, brought to us by our good friends at Robinson's Remedies or Rapid Relief for your sore and tired chops. This is the Robinson's Remedy Rapid Fire Round series of questions about all things life, not just okay. Trump. And uh, I just need your quickest responses. Yeah, I'll be brief. I'm sorry. I tend to go on. Oh, no, it's okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Here we go. Brian Shaw, first question for you. Who's the biggest influence on your life that's not a trumpet player? my dad all right what's your favorite book the one i'm reading right now lincoln uh what's the worst movie you've ever seen <laughs> it's one that i played the soundtrack on actually it's uh it's a willie nelson movie called fighting with anger it's a willie nelson kung fu film if you can believe that or not Ooh, ooh. It, it sounds bad, doesn't it? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to get a get a bottle of really bad bourbon and watch that. We'll need it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. If you weren't a trumpet player, what would you want to be? A uh, painter. What's your favorite drink? Old fashioned. 
Mm, okay. Rye or, or bourbon? I'm a bourbon guy. Yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah. Is that wrong? Was that the wrong answer? Oh no 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 no. That's 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 the right answer. Bourbon oh, is always the correct answer. Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, you can have a dinner party. Invite any three living people. Who would you want to have there? Barack Obama. That would be really interesting. Um, gosh, that's a great question. Gustavo Duhamel. And boy, this is a tough one. I'm sorry, I'm taking too long. It's not rapid fire. It's rapid fire for Southern Illinois. Yeah. <laughs> we, we talk slow down there. Um, and oh, I need a third. Hmm. Doris Kern's good one. All right. Yeah. Uh, three additional chairs at your dinner table. Uh, any three people from history? Oh, man. Well, Abraham Lincoln. I'm such a Lincoln buff. Um, and Gottfried Reicha, who was Bach's first trumpet player. That'd be cool. And, hmm, man, we're going to need a translator. Uh, <laughs> And uh, FDR, why not? I thought you would ask Kenny Wheeler to be there so you can. Uh... Well, Kenny never talked, so I don't know. <laughs> he, uh, certainly among those people, uh, yeah. I knew okay. Kenny a little bit, so I, I, I did get to talk to him, but yeah, we wouldn't have said much. All right, cool. Lacquer, plated, or raw? Lacquer. What's your favorite quote? Mm, you're going to have to edit out all the silence. Um, <laughs> we, we were speaking with Rudd earlier, and he said his dad had a quote that was something, if I'm, I'm paraphrasing it, but it's, uh, life by the yard is hard, but by the inch it's a cinch. I like that. I just heard that one the other day. Yeah. Um, what is your greatest fear? Snakes. Snakes on a plane? Oh, God, that's even worse. <laughs> All right, you could uh, be granted one superpower. What would it be? The ability to fly. Okay. Yeah, that would have made those trips back and forth from Seattle to... Save me a ton of money, man. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Maybe the dog wouldn't like it, you know. Uh, what aspect of trumpet playing do you think is the most overrated? <laughs> I'm such a hypocrite, but probably the high register. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you are. Like, I, I'm totally a hypocrite. Yeah. <laughs> and what aspect do you feel is the most underrated? Personal expression. Yeah. Uh, you can go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice about music. What would it be? Don't do it. No. Uh, <laughs> stay away. Um, listen more and play less. Yeah. And uh, you're going to give your younger self 
uh, one piece of advice about life? <laughs> Where do we start? Um, Hmm. I think if I could do that, I would probably say start a family sooner. Yeah. Start or start a family young, I should say. Yeah. And final question for you, Mr. Brian Shaw, what do you want your legacy to be? Hmm. You know, they say people don't remember what you did, but they remember how you made them feel. And I hope that when I'm gone, people remember that I was somebody fun to be around that made them feel good about themselves and that they enjoyed hanging with. Uh, well, it's a wonderful legacy to have. And uh, you have certainly done your part uh, to make that come true today because this was oh, the most enjoyable hang. And well, thank you. Same for me. I had a great time. Oh, this is so much fun. And, uh, you know, so if... Uh, if you're interested in, in keeping up with Brian, uh, links to his website are in the show notes. Make sure you uh, follow him and, and uh, check out his blog, the No BS blog. And uh, we're looking forward to seeing that grow and seeing some more uh, controversial <laughs> topics brought up. Next thing you know, he's going to be talking about uh, multiple tonguing and uh, all kinds of other things that, that make people go, ugh. <laughs> makes me go, uh, too, which may be the problem. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the way I tongue. So it's like, <laughs> when they say use syllables, they didn't say which one. <laughs> yeah, right. It's right. <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, thanks, man. This is this has been great. You, you know, uh, I wish you nothing but the best of luck in uh, this new chapter of your life. I'm sure that there's going to be some wonderful things uh uh, coming from you in the very near future. So uh, you're, you're a great talent and a great guy. So I thank remember. you so much, Jose. I really enjoyed this. This is great. All right, great. And thank you very much for joining us for this little hang. And remember, you uh, need to like, subscribe, uh, send us checks, money orders, credit cards. We'll take it all. Uh, and help support the hang because uh, I, this is something I love doing and I, I love bringing you information and helping you get to know players that maybe you've never had a chance to talk to. So if you have somebody that you'd like to see me interview on a future episode, please uh, let me know and, uh, you know, we'll do our best to, to get them on. So thanks again, everybody. And as always, peace and slide grease. We out. Thanks for hanging with us today. This podcast is all about creating deeper connections through our mutual love of music and the trumpet life. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast and also like and share this episode with a friend. We want to see the hang grow for show. Please support our sponsors and consider becoming a personal supporter of this podcast as well. Remember, for less than the price of a bottle of valve oil a month, you can keep this podcast moving smothly. The Trumpet Guru's Hang is recorded at the Candy Factory, a co-working space and social club located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Jose Johnson is the executive producer. Post-production editing is by Mitch Bowers. Our opening theme song was composed and performed by Lexi Signal. And our closing theme music comes courtesy of The Greatest Funeral Ever. Incidental music is by Ethan Swayze and Jose Johnson. Graphic design by Ann Kirby of the Sweet Corps. The Trumpet Guru's Hang podcast is produced in collaboration with the So Good Lancaster Media Group. Mm -hmm.